Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Samantha Prince, assistant professor at Penn State Dickinson Law. We'll be discussing her article, Mega Company Employee Churn Meets 401k Vesting Schedules, A Sabotage on Workers' Retirement Wealth, which is forthcoming in the Yale Law and Policy Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Samantha, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here always. I'd like to start with kind of a basic question to set the stage a little bit. If I'm considering a job offer and among the various benefits that offer contains, there's a 401k plan. What does that mean for me? Is a 401k a good thing to have? And might it nudge me toward accepting the offer? That's a great question. I would say that if we look at this from the broader angle of looking at a retirement plan in particular, that's something that somebody should consider when they are looking for a job. But if we hone in on 401k plans specifically, just a little bit of a background in that space. A 401k plan is a tax qualified retirement plan. So there are certain benefits that both the employee and the employer receive as a result. And the 401k plan is probably the most prevalent of all of the types of retirement plans out there in private industry, at least. And so employers offer these plans as an employee benefit, a way for employees to save for retirement, and also a way, like I said before, that the employers reap a tax benefit and they're able to help with retirement. And this is the way our retirement system here in the United States has been set up more recently. So these tax benefits, what happens is when an employee defers part of their pay, they're able to choose the way to have some of their pay go directly into their retirement plan. So they contribute into the 401k plan. And when they do that, they're deferring taxation of that money. So it's not currently taxed and it won't be taxed until it comes out of the plan. Ultimately, at the same time, employers can contribute to the plan as well on that employee's behalf. And when they do, they receive a tax deduction for putting that money in. So no tax liability for the employee, a tax deduction for the employer. It's a pretty good benefit to have, right? Because we want to push off tax liability as long as we can. There are many things that you ask about with regard to should employees consider the 401k plan when deciding whether to work somewhere to take a job or choosing an employer. And certainly all employee benefits are things that somebody should consider. But the 401k in particular should be looked at carefully because not all 401k plans are the same. Employers have flexibility within the law. They make different choices basically on how they're going to contribute to the plan, who's allowed to be in the plan and when, and different kinds of parameters. As long as they stay within the law, within the tax code and ERISA, there are lots of choices that employers can make. And so when people are choosing to go to an employer, this is really something that's important to look at the details of. And so most people probably focus, I would think, on the matching percentage, that percentage of amount of money that the employee or the employer is going to contribute based on what the employee put in. That's usually accessible on somebody's website, but not always. I've seen plenty of company websites that just say we offer 401k benefits. And then the employee doesn't really know what that's going to look like. And that's the same across the board with lots of other details with regard to the 401k plan. 
There's also many other facets of 401k plans besides just that matching contribution that I think probably most people focus in on. Eligibility is one of them. There used to be a time when it was very prevalent for people to require you be there for a year before you were able to even start participating. Now we have a lot of companies that do auto enrollment, which is great. So people start work and they get to be auto-enrolled. And that doesn't have to always be right when they come in the door, but quite often it is. And that makes it even better because, you know, we don't even get to the question of vesting or anything else if somebody's not participating in the plan at all. And of course, the goal is to have people start saving and accumulating the wealth in their retirement plan to get them ready. And so part of that is their own contribution that's being put in. But it's really important that these employer contributions are in there too to help add to that wealth accumulation. So the vesting is an important aspect of these 401k plans, and people really haven't been paying a lot of attention to this. I've never understood why, because if you don't vest, you don't get the money. That's the, just the vet. Just circle back to what you asked originally. The 401k plan on its face is a good benefit for somebody. So sure, it should be considered when you're looking at jobs. But since that 401k plan can be different from employer to employer, a person really needs to do a little bit of research and see the full picture in order to know and in order to be able to compare employers when looking and when choosing their job. You mentioned vesting as something that people may not look at as closely as compared to the headline matching numbers. And vesting is the problem that you focus on in this paper. Could you talk a little bit about what vesting means in the 401k context and why it might be a problem for many workers? Vesting schedules are legal, and I'll talk about the different types in a minute. But I first want to be able to mention that Vesting schedules are used in over 50% of the plans out there. And like I said, there's no requirement. So not all employers reflect what their vesting schedule is on their websites or in materials that, that people have access to. So this is a problem because then people can't make a true educated decision as to where they want to work based on vesting. But what is it? It's when an employee defers part of their own salary and puts it in there, that's always 100% vested. So you earn that money, it's yours, you put it into the plan, and there's no chance that you can lose that. But where the vesting comes into play is when the employer puts money in for the employee, like in the case of the matching contribution. Sometimes there's a vesting schedule that has to be met before that money can become non-forfeitable. What that means is employees basically are required to stay at their employer for a certain amount of time in order to be able to get those contributions or be eligible to have them or to have them best. Where does this come from? Well, both ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code require that contributions vest within a certain amount of time in order for that plan to be tax qualified. And so there are different vesting types of vesting schedules. There's two that are permissible. One is called a three-year cliff schedule. And what that means is after one year of service, you're 0% vested in your employer contributions. After year two, you're also 0%. And at the end of year three, you have 100%. So it goes 0, 0, 100%. So you stick it out and you become 100% vested at the end of year three. The other type is a graded vesting schedule. And that one goes a little bit more gradually. So 0% at year one, 20% at year two, 40% at year three, and it goes up to six. And ultimately, at the end of year six, you are fully vested. So it goes 20% vested, 40%, etc. So those are the two types. And those are the two that are the main permissible. 
an employer can always do better than those. There are companies that'll do a graded schedule that goes 25, 50, 75, 100 and best people by year four. So it can vary as long as you're better than what the law requires. But many employers don't use a vesting schedule. Okay, I think it's 48% or something like that. They do immediate vesting, which simplifies things across the board and also makes sure that the people that are working and are partaking in and participating in the plan actually get those employer contributions right off the bat. So this is why it's important when you're looking for a job, right? Because let's say, for instance, if a warehouse worker's choice is between Walmart and Amazon and all other things look equal, maybe looking at the 401k plan as a benefit is going to be the deciding factor. And if you look at the vesting schedule, Walmart immediately vests. And so you don't have to stay for any length of time working for Walmart. You'll get your employer contributions when Walmart puts them in. But if you work for Amazon, there's a three-year cliff vesting schedule. The employee has to work for and have three years of service in order to vest in any of those contributions from Amazon. Same comparison goes for Lowe's and Home Depot. Lowe's has immediate vesting. Home Depot has a three-year cliff schedule just like Amazon. So it sounds like I have a potential problem if I start a job and I think that part of my compensation is coming in the form of this employer match. And then perhaps I, for whatever reason, don't stay at the job long enough for that that matching fund to become non-forfeitable. It hasn't vested yet. You mentioned a few prominent employers out there, but and you mentioned that about roughly half of employers don't have vesting. Are there particular kinds of employers or kinds of employment where this issue is particularly pronounced that do have a vesting process? And even if maybe half of employers have vesting and half of them don't, how big of a problem and scale is it that employees are working at companies, they're earning matching retirement funds from their employers, and then they decide to leave, they need to leave their employment, and they lose, they forfeit those retirement funds. It's really an interesting way to look at this from the standpoint of the companies that are mostly high turnover. Because if they're using vesting schedules, then those high turnover companies are the ones that are able to put money into the plan for these employees, but the employees never get it. And when you ask about which industries are the ones that basically have the highest turnover, right? If we're looking at it from that aspect, the leisure and hospitality industry typically experiences the highest turnover rates. That should really not surprise many people, given the seasonality of some of that. But the trade, transportation, and utilities industry, which includes warehouses, retail trade, transportation, all of those experience high turnover. And so when I look at Amazon and I look at Home Depot as examples of large employers who have these high turnover, it became concerning to me because warehouse employees reportedly turn over within a year on average. So if we think back to the vesting schedule that Amazon uses, which is that three-year cliff, and that somebody has to stay three years in order to vest, if the average tenure of somebody in the Amazon warehouse is one year, then they're never going to get that money. And so you're right to think about how does it make sense to work at a company if you're considering this as part of your compensation and then you're not going to ever get that. Right. And there are different reasons why this can be happening as far as why people leave. I want to put some numbers out here for you. When we look at retail and warehousing turnover, especially when we look at Home Depot and Amazon, I have some pretty big figures here for us to consider. And even if we say 48% of plants have immediate investing, but we're not talking about how many people, it's really this has to be focused on 
how many people are not getting the benefits that they had hoped to get for whatever that the reason is. And how does that fly in the face of a retirement planning? And how does that exacerbate inequality or a retirement insecurity? And so I have some numbers. In the years 2020, 2019, and 2018, so we'll take those three years and look at Amazon. If we look at their annual report on their Form 5500, which is the plan report every year. In 2020, Amazon reported that 92,861 people were terminated without vesting. That means within that three-year time frame. That's over 92,000. Okay. In 2019, 34,181. In 2018, it was 26,864. And we know that throughout the pandemic, things changed a bit. Amazon really boomed. But we also know that Amazon has been high turnover anyway beside that. And if we look at Home Depot, Home Depot's numbers for the same year, 2020, 68,638 people. This is, again, this is a number of how many people left or terminated prior to vesting. So before that three-year time hit for the three-year cliff to, to, to be met in 2019, 93,880. And right the year before that, 2018, 77,487. So we're talking large amounts of people. And these are people who put money into the plan. They deferred some of their salaries to the plan, likely induced to do so by the matching contribution, whatever it is. And in the hopes of being able to get that as part of their compensation, but they're not going to receive any of those employer contributed retirement benefit. But so you might be thinking, why do we even have vesting schedules? They were historically used for employee retention purposes. If you induce somebody, you dangle that carrot and say, hey, if you stay for three years, you'll get all of this money is going to vest. So that's a great benefit. And that's driven by employee loyalty, employee retention thought process. Unfortunately, as we look at least these two companies, there's still all this turnover, particularly where you have companies that are known for bad work environments. So the vesting schedule is not really retaining people. When we consider Amazon's turnover rate for warehouses as one year, there's no retention going on there. Here's the problem from a monetary standpoint as it pertains to the retirement aspect of this. So these companies know that they have high turnover, okay? It's something that they know. It's been going on probably since they even opened their businesses. So then they get the idea that let's think about our retirement plan schedule. And I can't say what they were thinking at the time, but certainly when you look at the tandem of how this is going to play out for the companies that have the high turnover and have the three-year cliff, it, it gets concerning because what happens is the schedule allows them, these companies, to save money for them, not just about employee retention because there's a financial aspect to it. And so let me explain that when employees terminate em employment for whatever reason, before their employer contributions are fully vested, that unvested amount is going to be forfeited. But this money is already in the plan. It's, it's a trust. So it can't kick back out to the employer. But these forfeited funds can't just float around in the plan trust. There has to be some direction of where that money goes when it's not going to go to the person it was originally earmarked for due to that person terminating. And so these funds are called forfeitures. So the plan language needs to say, how are we going to allocate or reallocate these forfeitures? Where are we going to put this money now that the person, the former employee is not here anymore? While the plan language can actually deviate as to what the plan or what can be done with that money or what will be done with that money, most plans reallocate the money after the former employee 
either incurs five consecutive one year's breaks in service or when the former employee voluntarily or involuntarily takes their vested money out of the plan. Or once they withdraw their plan account, which is what they put in, the salary deferrals, then the rest will be forfeited at that time. And it's pretty technical and there's not real reason to get into that aspect of it in more detail here, but it sets the stage for what the company can do legally with regard to reallocating that money. And there are different ways that this can be done. The one, it can be used to reduce future employer contributions. That's super important to keep in mind. It also can be used to pay reasonable administrative expenses. It can be used to provide additional contributions to current participants and or it can be used to restore previously forfeited participant accounts. So when we think about the ways that the company has the flexibility to reallocate the money that it put into the plan on behalf of these folks, we're seeing a direct savings to that employer because now we're reducing or they have the ability to reduce how much they put in the fresh money aspect. The money's already there. It's been forfeited by all these folks that left before three years. And now the company can use that money to either pay their admin expenses or to reduce their future contributions that they're required to make based on the plan language and maybe the matching percentage. So now they're saving money. They don't have to. So I'm not saying that Amazon or Home Depot are deliberately churning people because they get to the benefit of the forfeitures. I'm not saying that, but this is an added bonus for them. This saves them some money when it comes down to this, the retirement money that they're putting in for people. And if the money is being used to provide additional contributions to current participants, you see they're redistributing contributions that the employer likely made on behalf of the lower paid high turnover people to employees who are not high turnover and are likely the higher paid. And all of this works towards negatively impacting retirement inequality and security. So on an individual level, forfeiting some of the matching funds that you had thought of as part of your compensation, but maybe weren't because you left perhaps a high churn job before you met some long vesting schedule. On an individual level, that might be a disappointment. That might be an individual harm. But could you talk a little bit about some of the implications this might have for wealth inequality, more broadly speaking? Retirement wealth inequality is a real serious issue here in the United States. And there are many factors that really can contribute to this. And there are plenty of scholars that have done really great research in this area. There's definite socioeconomic and racial implications at play here. The factors that have contributed to the disparities are lack of intergenerational wealth, plan access, plan participation, lower risk tolerance, and financial illiteracy. In my article, I focus on two of these factors because I'm focused on the vesting aspect. And so I focus on the two that most directly are impacted by vesting schedule. And that would be the intergenerational wealth accumulation aspect and the financial illiteracy aspect. The way all of this works when you're talking about folks across the board, when you start with less money, you have less of a chance to accumulate wealth presently and generationally. Also, when you look at it from the financial illiteracy standpoint or literacy, there are many views on this. My focus is on two things regarding the financial literacy. One, People don't really understand vesting. And if they don't in the long term or it's not fresh in their mind when they're making that decision, whether to stay or leave, when do they hear about it? 
they hear about it probably very extensively during their onboarding when they first start the job. That's the time when folks are really being hit with all kinds of other HR stuff. And so I'm not convinced that people are really able to process that and always have that in front of mind when they're making life decisions with regard to their job. And the other thing is that when they look at their plan, whether they look at it online or they get their plan statement sent to them as a participant, if there's a vesting schedule part of this, that really makes that plan statement a lot more complicated as compared to one where there's immediate vesting, less columns, less to consider, things that not everybody's a number person. Seeing a bunch of percentages everywhere and all kinds of numbers, it can be confusing. And I'm not sure that educating folks on that is going to really solve the problem overall. So I think let's look at simplicity. Let's try and make this easier on people. But there's a lot more that we could unpack in that regard. But I think that pretty much sets out the gist. But I'd like to give you some numbers. In a 2019 Federal Reserve report showed that the median household retirement accounts based on race or ethnicity were as follows. 80,000 for white families, 35,000 for black non-Hispanic and 31,000 for Hispanic. We see numbers also statistically that low-paid workers are disproportionately Black and Hispanic. And if we look at Amazon's warehouse demographics, the numbers there also align with this statement. Their EOC filings show that their warehouse workers, those very people who are turning over within probably within that year or so, but definitely most likely within that three-year cliff schedule timeframe, are predominantly people of color. When you look at those EEOC numbers, that disclosure, you can see it in their filing. You can see it on their website. 28.5% are white and everybody else are predominantly the group that are being really hit hard here. But we're looking at even just all of them being low paid. That's a problem. And they're not getting their retirement money because they're leaving or churning out before that time. Basically, what I'm saying is this means that even if they're participating in the plan and they're putting their salary deferrals in, Anything that Amazon puts in for them is going to ultimately be forfeited. They don't stick out that three years and they don't stay, whether it's due to the reported intolerable conditions that we see on that on a recent leaked document, on New York Times articles. We see a lot of things coming out with regard to Amazon's working conditions, or maybe it's part of Amazon's deliberate employee churn where they actually want to keep people moving in and out because they think that folks will be less complacent or lazy if you have them being fresh. That deliberate employee churn is another thing contributing to this high turnover at Amazon. And remember, we're talking in 2020, we're talking over 90,000 people. And that's only considering the people that terminated prior to vesting. There could be others, men most assuredly are, that were past the three years that also churned out. But the churn aspect here is really egregious. And I don't want to miss that when we're talking about this because Amazon does what it can to turn over people prior to that year three. They stop giving raises before year three. Advancement opportunities disappear before then. Again, think about those working conditions being all about the customer and not so much about the employees. You look at this and you say, okay, are these employees considering vesting schedules when they leave? And should they? It's part of their financial considerations. But if it's really terrible to work there, you're not thinking of anything but getting out. And that's actually what gave me the inspiration for this article. When I saw the New York Times article saying about how people are churning out, how deliberate the policies were at Amazon to get 
folks to churn out within a short amount of time. And then my first thought, I'm imagining most people in the world wouldn't think like this, but my first thought was, gee, I wonder what Amazon's vesting schedule is. I bet it's a clip vesting schedule. And I was right. That really was the inspiration for being able to look at this article and the coverage in this article as I did. But overall, back to your question, it's really difficult for lower paid individuals to accumulate wealth, to live, and then even for retirement. It's just really hard to do this, much less to be able to pass it on to other generations. But missing out on these vesting contributions conflates that because people have less money to invest that can compound over time. One of the goals of retirement plan reform and just thinking about the tax benefit of the retirement plan being qualified. That goal is to make the tax laws relating to qualified retirement plans fairer by providing greater equality of treatment under such plans for the different taxpayer groups concerned. And if that's a goal, we need to pay close attention to what's going on here and how people are being affected. You know, combining these vesting schedules with high turnover or employee churn negatively impacts those groups that have the lowest retirement savings, and that's contributing that goal. When you think about low-paid and minority workers being behind on accumulating wealth and not vesting in contributions while working, this is going to just add to their struggle to be able to accumulate. Are there any policy proposals that you offer in this paper that might address some of these problems? related to vesting a 401k contributions? I do have some ideas. One of the important things that we need to do is get a handle on the racial and socioeconomic implications of this combination of the high turnover and the vesting schedules. Ignoring it is not going to help anything. So the problem is that Right now, there's not data being provided in a way that we can accurately drill down on the problem. Mandatory regulatory filings give us some idea to postulate the disparate impact. They don't provide accurate numbers for a variety of different reasons. And so one of the things that I call for in my article is in alignment with President Biden's call for getting more data, and especially from the tax standpoint and the Department of Labor standpoint, that will help us be able to figure this out. But I want to say that regardless of the lack of hard data, my article does provide a glimpse into the harms that marginalized groups who work in high turnover businesses experience as a result of these vesting schedules. Ultimately, though, what I would like to see is that vesting schedules just go away altogether. But I'm not the first person to propose there will definitely be pushback on that, particularly when you consider small businesses that could benefit from the use of vesting schedules. But my main concern is really the volume of the people who churn through some of these mega companies like Amazon and Home Depot. So certainly I'd like to see immediate vesting for those companies. Their vesting schedules are just put too many people out without the money that they could have that could really benefit them from the retirement security. And perhaps as low-paid workers, they don't have large sums of money, but every little bit helps and gives them the money that they can compound if they don't take a distribution. But really, something needs to be done overall to address this direct tension with retirement plan policy when employers that know they have high turnover deliberately choose these vesting schedules and do in a way that financially benefits them. If I can't get immediate vesting, I do offer some other alternatives. One method would be to consider changing how partial plan terminations are viewed or calculated. Right now, they're using, the IRS uses a significant percentage test 
And so the larger the employer, the more people that they can lay off and still come within the parameters of that. I'd like to see a significant number, which is allowed within the rules on partial plan termination, but hasn't been really used. Partial plan terminations are important because when they occur, it mandates everybody be 100% vested. And this gets into pretty complicated stuff. I have a whole nother article on partial plan terminations. One of the problems with being able to try and fit this into that is they carve out routine turnover. And so that doesn't necessarily solve the problem here. It's not the cleanest way to go about it. And so I offer another method, and that would be to mimic some of the policy goals and some of the anti-discrimination testing that's in the retirement plan rules or that are in the retirement plan rules but in a manner that focuses on the forfeitures of the lower paid workers. So looking like a vesting for high turnover approach that maybe could reduce employee churn because it would incentivize companies to do better for their employees. And if the company does not want to be subject to this, hey, immediately vest, you don't have this problem then. And so I have a couple of different equations or formulae in the article that I hope that the IRS will consider when seeking to tackle this area to make sure that we get the retirement money into the hands of those who have been missing out on it. Are there any key takeaways that you'd like listeners to have from this conversation or from the article? Since the U.S. relies on businesses to help ensure people save for retirement, we really need to be more deliberate about the impact of the laws we have in place on these plans. So we give tax benefits to the employers for having these plans. And so we need to make sure that those tax benefits are used across the board in a way that helps everybody. So while there are many fish to fry in the retirement insecurity and inequality space, vesting has been often overlooked and it can't be. It's the kingpin. If you don't get to a point where you vest, then you don't have the money. So you don't even get to consider improving retirement security if you don't handle the vesting issue. And when looking at these kinds of companies, they have the ones that have this extraordinarily high turnover and use that vesting schedule to save on employee expenses. This is problematic. It's going against the goals of retirement policy. It, it really, these businesses shouldn't be permitted to use these vesting schedules. You know, but if Congress won't close the door on them, then we need to implement some better testing mechanisms to require vesting when we consider the turnover is too high, right? And perhaps such a requirement will induce employers to do better for their employees and actually retain employees based on working conditions instead of claiming the vesting schedule is in place to help retain them. Because for some companies that may be true, but when you see it's definitely not working, then that's not what the real reason is. Bottom line, too many people marginalized groups are negatively impacted by the way these retirement plan rules are being applied. And we need to do better. We need to fix it. And we need to pay more attention to the vesting aspect. Our guest has been Samantha Prince, assistant professor at Penn State Dickinson Law. We've discussed her article, Mega Company Employee Churn Meets 401k Vesting Schedules, a Sabotage in Workers' Retirement Wealth, which is forthcoming in the Yale Law and Policy Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Samantha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.